Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome uh, to the Atlantic Council. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm the um, director of the Brent Scowcroft Center here on international security and Atlantic Council vice president. I'm really glad to welcome you all here today for what will surely be a very interesting and forward-looking conversation on Iran's current and projected conventional missile capabilities. This is a very important topic. Um, I have some extensive personal experience uh, having overseen uh, the Obama administration's missile defense review um, f that largely focused on Europe, interestingly enough, but that was really uh, um, uh, quite focused on Iran's current and projected capabilities at that time. So I almost see this as a much needed um, sort of comprehensive assessment of was that direction still a useful one? If not, should um, we be thinking about making recommendations for the next administration, which will start in a, in a, in a few months here, uh, to, to take a different approach with an updated assessment of the actual facts and trends uh, on the ground? So it's a great time and a very important topic. Um, the paper you see here, uh, authored by Bilal Saab, who's the director of the Scowcroft Center's Middle East Peace and Security Initiative, and also by Michael Elliman, who's a consulting senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I won't preempt the discussion, but what Bilal and Mike um, analyze here um, might be a shift in Iranian missile policy, a shift from a focus on developing longer range capabilities, which was the focus of the Bush administration at the time, to developing greater accuracy, which of course can complicate US policy as Iran could then project these capabilities to Gulf cities and to high value assets. This capability set then raises several questions. How can the United States best work with the Arab Gulf countries on dealing with these challenges? In particular, furthering Arab Gulf missile defense integration, which has been quite elusive up to this point. And that's one of the reasons we're thrilled to have um, uh, retired Admiral Fazi Miller here. Uh, who was um, the commander of the U.S. Naval Forces in Central Command, and he concurrently served at that time as commander of the Combined Maritime Forces and commander of the U.S. Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. So Bilal and Mike, in addition to being moderated, if that's possible, by Ambassador Miller, will also be joined on the panel by Atlanta Council Board Director and Ambassador Zalmay Khalizad. He was former U.S. Representative to the U.N. and Ambassador to Iraq and Afghanistan, has a fantastic book out, which I commend to all of you called the Envoy, uh, as well as a very invaluable and active um, Atlanta Council board member here, and also Kelsey Davenport, who is a frequent contributor here. We have her on stage as much as we can. She's the director for nonproliferation policy at the Arms Control Association. We like to try to take the strategic view on issues that affect uh, regional security. And so um, this is part of a long body of work. You're, most of you are probably aware of the Hariri Center's really interesting effort to um, develop a Middle East strategy under Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and um, former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley. That's coming soon, later this fall. Uh, that's one of those issues, and we are working with them, um, including the task force that traveled to six Arab capitals, to six capitals in the region, uh, including Riyadh, where we met with King Salman uh, and met with other heads of state and so watch that space. And then, of course, the Scowcroft Center has spearheaded a lot of projects on Gulf security uh, and U.S. strategy in the region after the Iran deal. Uh, Bilal has routinely addressed these and other pressing Gulf security issues in his Gulf policy working group. And we've also highlighted a lot of the issues and progress made since the different sum the USGCC summits with a whole sort of post-Riyadh campaign that covered a lot of different issues. 
that were addressed at both of the recent summits. So I think with that, I want to get to the good stuff. Um, I'd also like to remind you that um, please follow along and AC Scowcroft, and the hashtag is AC Mideast. Thanks very much, and I welcome the panel now on stage. everyone, and thanks to uh, Barry for the introduction. Uh, thanks to the Atlanta Council and the Brent Scoutcroft uh, Center for putting together this panel. Welcome to all of you, and uh, welcome to those of you that are following on the, uh, on the web. A little bit about the flight plan for today. I will briefly introduce our, uh, our panel members and then uh, invite them to make some remarks about the paper and uh, about Iran's missile program in general. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then we'll open it up to, uh, to some questions and answers. So I'll begin by uh, introducing Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad. Uh, he is uh, currently the president of uh, Gryphon Partners. But he's also served as the uh, pr uh, permanent uh, representative for the United States to the United Nations. Prior to that, uh, he served as our ambassador to Iraq and, and to Afghanistan. Uh, he was also the uh, uh, U.S. Special Presidential Envoy to Afghanistan. Uh, he sits on a number of boards, including the Atlanta Council here, uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, the RAND Corporation, uh, and American University of Iraq and American University of Afghanistan. Uh, he travels extensively throughout the region uh, and is often called upon by regional leaders for, for advice. Uh, he has his uh, bachelor's degree and master's degree from American University in Beirut, as well as a PhD from the University of Chicago. Uh, one of the co-authors of the paper is uh, Mr. Michael Elman. Uh, he's a consultant and senior fellow for uh, missile defense at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, he's the principal author for ISS Strategic Dossier on Iran's Ballistic Missile Capabilities, a net assessment. I uh, is uh, also responsible for continuing research on the missile and space programs of North Korea and Iran. Uh, before joining uh, IISS, Mike spent five years at Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, where he supported the implementation of the Cooperative Threat Reduction Programs and uh, sponsored by the U.S. Uh, DOD and Department of Energy. Prior to that, he spent 18 months at the United Nations Monitoring, Verification, and Inspection Commission as a missile expert for weapons inspection missions in, in, in Iraq. Uh, before uh, joining the UN, Mike spent two decades as a scientist at Lockheed Martin's Research and Development Laboratory. Uh, from 1995 to 2001, he led a cooperative threat reduction program in Russia aimed at dismantling obsolete long-range missiles, and Mike's a graduate of physics from the University of California at, at Berkeley. Uh, Ms. Kelsey Davenport is the Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association where she provides research and analysis uh, on nuclear and missile programs in Iran, North Korea, India, and Pakistan, and on nuclear security issues. Uh, Kelsey joined the Arms Control Association in 2011 as the Herbert Scoville Jr. Peace Fellow. Prior to uh, coming to the Arms Control Association, Kelsey worked for a think tank in Jerusalem, researching regional security issues and track two diplomatic negotiations. She has a master's degree in peace studies from the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame, 
and she graduated summa cum laude from Butler University with a BA in International Studies and Political Science. And then our final panelist, of course, is Bilal Saab. He traveled the least distance to be here because he is a senior fellow and director of the Middle East Peace and Security Initiative at the Brent Scowcroft Center here at the Atlantic Council. And he also chairs the Gulf Working Policy Group and Middle East Crisis Simulation Series. Uh, Bilal is also a, a monthly columnist with The National, and he has more than 14 years experience uh, working as a political analyst and advisor. Uh, he's had p positions in a number of uh, think tanks, uh, including uh, Brookings, the Center for Nonproliferation Studies, CSIS, and the Middle East Institute. He has master's degrees from uh, the University of Maryland College Park and also from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and a bachelor's degree from American University in Beirut. So once again, thanks to, to uh, uh, the Atlantic Council for putting together a, a truly excellent uh, panel. Uh, Ambassador, we'll, uh, we'll start with you and I'm wondering if in, in your remarks you can address a couple of questions. Uh, the first of which is really what risks do the uh, enhanced Iranian missile capabilities pose to the United States uh, and pose to the partners? Uh, and then given the, uh, the maturity of the Iranian ballistic missile program, um, what should the partners be doing? And, and, and given the, the progress or lack of progress that they've made thus far, what expectation do you have uh, that they'll do, do the sort of things that they should be doing? Well, uh, thank you very much, Admiral. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. The credit goes to Mike and Bilal. Uh, I, I, my role with regard to their paper was to write a very short preface, and I'm delighted that, uh, that uh, they asked me to do that. Um, with regard to the uh, uh, issue and the questions uh, that you've asked, Admiral, I, I'd like to uh, use the 10 minutes that we're assigned uh, to make uh, four points. Um, uh, point one is that the uh, Iranian uh, missile program uh, is part of a larger set of concern that we have globally about proliferation. And the, in this uh, new era, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and missiles uh, really rank among the highest uh, priorities of U.S. national security concerns. And Although we have reached an agreement with Iran, have implemented uh, for the duration that is envisaged, uh, there is some uh, constraint on the nuclear uh, program of Iran, which was of great concern and remains of concern, but, but in a different way. Uh, but the missile program uh, was not directly affected uh, by that uh, agreement. And, uh, uh, although uh, the paper uh, uh, does argue that the, uh, there is a shift uh, in terms of Iranian emphasis on uh, having more capable uh, in terms of accuracy, in terms of uh, uh, payload, in terms of control to be more lethal uh, 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 in a regional sort of context, medium-range missiles, but I don't think one can count that uh, the emphasis could not change again, uh, and therefore uh, it's not out of the question that over time uh, the Iranian missile program could pose a threat to the homeland, uh, to the United States itself, and to its allies in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, uh, Iran has launched several satellites, and the, the knowledge uh, and experience and uh, gained uh, 
uh, from the launch of those missiles have uh, direct applicability uh, to the, uh, the, the development of, uh, of ICBM. So, uh, and I think a paper that mentioned uh, that uh, our intelligence community's assessment uh, appears to be that if they decide to do so, develop an ICBM, we're talking about uh, maybe within a decade. And, and that's not a very long time in terms of military planning uh, when you think about the future of the world. Uh, so that is one, that there is a global dimension to, to, to this program. Uh, and the homeland security issue ultimately is, cannot be kind of put aside completely, although the emphasis is on, on the region. Second uh, point is uh, uh, that the missile program of Iran is part of a, uh, a set of uh, undesirable, uh, I wanted to say deplorable, but then I remember that it was <laughs> a, a set of developments in the region and that uh, affects uh, our interests, uh, a region that poses uh, some of the most urgent uh, national security issues that, uh, that the world faces. And that has to do with uh, uh, kind of regional wars uh, in Iraq and Syria that uh, uh, has helped uh, provide an environment in which terrorism, which is a global threat uh, to all of us, has grown. And Iran has had a direct role in the instability uh, uh, and conflict that, takes, uh, that has taken place there. And the, the overall Iranian and, uh, effort aimed at regional preeminence uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in that region. And also its use of proxies very effectively as, as another uh, tool, uh, its use of cyber as a, yet a, another tool. It's, uh, as we see every day or recently in the Gulf, harassment of, uh, of kind of some kind of guerrilla warfare sort of in the Gulf. Uh, and the missiles seem to be part of a, of a program uh, uh, to, 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 uh, 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 be able to do uh, asymmetric uh, damage threats uh, to to its adversaries for purposes of deterrence, uh, and 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 uh, perhaps in the future uh, for for conflict, uh, uh, concluding conflict on its terms. Now, point three is the more specific issue of the challenge. Uh, uh, narrowly of, the, of, of missiles. Now, Iran developed its missiles. We all remember, because uh, I, uh, uh, I myself uh, uh, was in the Department of Defense when the uh, Gulf War uh, started. The first, the, 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 I'm talking about the Iraq-Iran War, and uh, it, it was the Iraqis that uh, attacked uh, Iranian cities with, uh, with uh, with missiles, and that encouraged uh, Iran, as the papers uh, argue, to develop its own, and they did. Uh, and once they had developed some rudimentary capability of their own, the Saddam reconsidered attacking the cities, and there was uh, periods of suspension uh, of attacks, the, the war of cities. And over time, uh, uh, I believe that Iran came to a judgment that uh, having a nuclear weapons uh, and missile programs uh, that can deliver them 
extensively uh, uh, was uh, uh, important, uh, a lesson they learned from the Gulf War. I remember that in the post-Gulf uh, War, several countries did lessons learned. We did our own lessons learned. In fact, I headed our lessons learned when I was in the Pentagon. But they, a lot of countries did theirs, including Iran, India, and a few others. And uh, surprisingly, one conclusion that many of them drew was, you know, if you want to avoid a fate such as the one that uh, Iraq suffered, you need to have what, nuclear weapons and, and, and missiles. But we know, we, I referred to the nuclear agreement earlier. Uh, the manifestation of the interest in the nuclear weapons was the activities that took place for many years. That, uh, but uh, the missile program has continued at this point. As the paper ably demonstrates, these missiles are more, uh, although they have grown in numbers significantly and in, uh, in, in range, but they are largely uh, uh, valuable as weapons of terror, as deterrent weapons to go after big targets uh, because they are, uh, they are inaccurate. And they are not that useful uh, uh, in a narrow counter uh, uh, um, military targets, small defended military targets. And, but that is beginning to change. And, 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 and uh, they're, they're going for greater accuracy, greater lethality, uh, greater range uh, up to about 2,000 kilometer. And uh, 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 this would give them more options compared to uh, uh, the capabilities that they have now, and that's complicate uh, responses, uh, put more demands on the defenders, which means that, uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, missile defense, uh, which uh, there is a lot of effort being made at the region uh, level and uh, by us in the region, but uh, 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 th th there has to be adaptation maybe, uh, because there is sort of action-reaction uh, that, uh, that uh, would, have to, would have to, as the numbers increase, as accuracies increase, uh, the level of effort required to defend oneself, to defend against those missiles, would have to also uh, uh, have to adapt. And uh, the last and fourth point that I want to make is that uh, uh, thinking about the future of the region, again, a broader point, uh, and uh, the Atlantic Council is, uh, uh, in order to stabilize uh, this region, a number of things are needed, uh, which are ending the civil wars, some balance of power among the reg major regional uh, uh, powers, uh, so to preclude uh, hegemony by a single power, and uh, the US as a balancer, uh, uh, the, the ultimate balancer, uh, the evolution uh, towards mutual acceptance of um, between sex and between the three powers, the main regional powers, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, some kind of CSCE type arrangements ultimately is part of the vision that uh, places like uh, 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 the Atlantic Council are working on for the, uh, for the next administration uh, to consider, but I think uh, 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 the missile uh, challenge and how the, uh, the, this challenge will be dealt with in part by defense, 
whether there are opportunities for ag some sort of agreements in the context of building confidence uh, and cooperative arrangements uh, need to be also part of the agenda. Although the prospect, I have to say, having just come back from the region, for such an outcome of a cooperative arrangement is extremely limited at this point. That what you hear is, is that the region is moving towards, if anything, more polarization and, 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 and uh, 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 perhaps even wider conflict. Uh, I, I believe that the paper that has been done uh, uh, by Bilal and Micah is an extremely positive, timely contribution to take a kind of measure of where we are with regard to the uh, Iranian capabilities on the missile front and the, its immediate, by immediate I mean the next five to ten year uh, uh, horizon of where it's heading and what challenges that it poses. I have to say uh, that uh, the missile defense part, I know that there are some uh, holes in the, uh, in the defense uh, that exist, although a lot of effort has been made, and integration is a problem. But I was also, uh, 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 to end on a positive note, uh, impressed that the, uh, the, the regional leaders recognize both of those, and that the people, our people dealing with this, uh, with the region recognize it. Now, that, that's necessary, but not sufficient. But, uh, but, uh, uh, I think the paper has made a, a very positive contribution, and, and, and thank you for inviting me to be part of the panel. Ambassador, thanks very much for the, uh, your remarks. You, you bring up a number of good points that I'm sure we're going to have an opportunity to explore further uh, during the course of the panel. In particular, um, this Iranian strategy, mosaic strategy that the paper yeah. does, does address, and it's, it's the use of proxies both on the land and at sea, right. uh, but also in cyber, right. uh, and then perhaps an opportunity to discuss, sure. you know, how do they blend that with their missile program, which right. is, you know, it would be something very overt and obviously lots of fingerprints on them. Uh, <clears throat> and then, of course, a, a, an opportunity to talk integrated air and missile defense, which will right. be uh, something perhaps Mike in particular will get into. Mike, as we move to you, uh, one of the, the questions I posed to you is, is how far have they come in their, in their uh, precision uh, capability? Have they advanced enough? Are they doing enough testing? <clears throat> we, you know, we find uh, great consternation every time they, they test a ballistic missile, and we'll have a chance to talk with Kelsey here in a little bit about whether or not their missile test, you know, in fact, violate sanctions. But if you can uh, address how, how far they've come, are they doing enough testing, and then perhaps what can we do to slow them down? Okay. Um, well, thank you, to, uh, Admiral Miller, and to the Atlantic Council and Bilal, whose idea it was to uh, write this paper. Um, this is a topic that I've, well, I've been following um, Iran's missile program for quite some time. Um, so I think the first point I want to make is I'm really glad that at least for the next decade or so, we're talking about conventionally armed missiles and not nuclear armed missiles. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's the first and foremost point to make is, mm -hmm. is you know, ballistic missiles are an, can be an effective tool of warfare um, if you can make them accurate enough, if you have a strategy for employing them and understanding their, their capabilities and limitations. Um, but I don't think there's something that can turn the tide <clears throat> of war. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and the exception would be if they're armed with nuclear weapons. Um, as I said, uh, I've been 
following Iran's program for years. Um, and last year, I started a, a small uh, project to look at how Iran's missile doctrine or strategies was beginning to evolve. Um, as uh, Ambassador Lilzad uh, correctly pointed out, in the past, um, you know, they, these have been a tool of deterring or coercing um, their adversaries or rivals in the region by threatening to strike cities. This is a lesson that they drew from uh, the Iran-Iraq war um, and also from the Operation Desert Storm where Saddam was able to uh, create great havoc by attacking Israel and uh, the Gulf states with his missiles. So, I mean, this is an embedded idea. Um, it's uh, a lesson that they have not um, given up on or, or relinquished. They continue to boast about their capabilities of their missiles to, to deter, and, and they even say they're for defense and deterrence. Um, although the, my understanding is the Farsi word is a bit ambiguous uh, regarding um, de their conception of deterrence, uh, which we can talk about a little later. Um, Iran was quickly able to create the capacity um, with the help of North Korean um, supply of missiles and engines to threaten targets as far away as about 2,000 kilometers. In other words, they could hit uh, their rivals of greatest concern, the US in the Gulf, um, Israel, uh, Turkish air bases uh, that might be used in, a, in a, um, uh, an invasion of Iran. And so that really met their need for most of, uh, most of the last three decades. However, as they watched the, the military buildup um, before Desert Storm, uh, as they watched the military buildup before Operation Iraqi Freedom, they saw that it took quite a bit of time and, uh, and to assemble the forces and that any invading army would not just instantly appear in their territory. So they began in the late 90s to look at ways that they might actually be able to conduct warfare with missiles. And they started off with their short-range systems, um, taking long-range artillery rockets uh, and converting them into to missiles by adding a control and guidance component. Um, this began, oh, 15 years ago or so, and they've been slowly developing that capacity for their short-range systems, that is 200 kilometers and less. Uh, using techniques that are similar to the way um, our um, attackum system, um, the Russian uh, Tochka missile, it flies within the atmosphere. They're making good progress, um, but they still can't achieve what they want. Um, let me give a couple examples. Um, for a missile carrying a one-ton warhead, it has to land within about 50 meters of its intended target to destroy it, depending on the, the, the um, hardness of that target. It can be 70 meters for people. Um, it could be as little as 20 meters uh, for a hardened target. So that means the missile has to land pretty darn close to the target. Um, the Scud missile lands within one kilometer of its intended target about half the time. So obviously, you would have to fire a lot of Scud missiles at a target. With the Fatah 110, it has, in, in, well, I guess, increasingly um, reduced, decreasingly reduced, um, uh, its missed distances. Right now, as it stands, it's probably on the order of what a Scud missile is. Um, at least if you look at the test results 
or the military exercises that were conducted in 2012. I suspect that they've made some advances since then. Um, for that particular system, the technology they're trying to master, I think they'll probably require at least another five years, um, probably more. Um, but they, the more important issue is they'll have to test them, um, I mean, scores of tests every year. And that's not the pace of testing that we see today. Now, last year, about this time, they also uh, presented a new missile called the EMAD, um, which I believe means pillar. Um, it is basically a Shahab-3 Goddard-type missile, flies 1,600 kilometers, but it looks like it has a maneuverable warhead uh, for making corrections uh, during its descent towards the target. Um, this is a very different technology than the one they're developing for the Fatal 110. And it took the United States, you know, for purging two, I think 15 to 20 years to master the technology. Uh, China is still trying to master it with a DF-21. Um, of course, they're going after a harder target, a moving um, aircraft carrier. Um, you know, and so this is not something that's going to occur overnight. Um, I would say at least a decade, unless they got extensive foreign assistance from Russia or China. Um, but more importantly, I think, is they would have to conduct a, you know, a couple tests a month. The current pace of testing of the nuclear-capable missiles, that is, the, those that travel 300 kilometers or more, is uh, right around four and a half to five per year. And this is, this is what it has been in the last 12 months. This is what it's been almost every year since about 2000, with two exceptions, um, where they did no testing. Um, so, and the other limitation is how many of these Scud and, and Nodong or Shahab-type missiles do they have? in their stockpile? Are they able to produce them indigenously, fully, or do they still have to rely on engines from North Korea, which in turn are actually, were from Russia? Um, you know, if they only have 100 of these Shahab 3s, they'd end up using all of them in, in the developmental testing. So this is a dilemma that they face, and I think it's gonna slow the progress unless they develop new missile systems that they can test at a, at a greater rate. So I think, um, you know, for me, the Probably the most important thing for us to do now is to keep a watchful eye and make sure the Russians and Chinese aren't helping them um, and uh, see if they can, they can master the technology. But it's going to take quite a bit of time. Where else might they go besides Russia or China to get assistance? Well, they, they could. Um, in principle, go to Pakistan, which has a number of systems that are actually Chinese, um, and learn from how those are structured. But to duplicate the technology would require them to do a lot of testing. I, that could shorten the time frame, and it's another area where I would be um, concerned about. Um, but uh, I want to mention also, there's, there's an, in addition to the missiles themselves, there's an enabling set of technologies or capabilities they have to develop in parallel. And that is to acquire the tar you know, target acquisition, bomb damage assessment, the communication systems that network the entire thing. I mean, this becomes an architecture, if you will. It's not just the missiles themselves. Now, Iran is, is producing a fair number of um, uh, UAVs, which are capable of doing reconnaissance, whether they can do it over um, hostile territory, you know, uh, that, that's a question that remains unanswered. I, 
I, if I had to guess, I would say that it would be difficult. Um, but these are, in order to use them effectively, especially against mobilizing forces that are you know, gathering on your borders, you need to have this reconnaissance capacity to do, develop your target list, uh, transmit that information to the, the missile units, then fire to those positions, and then do a follow-up and, and assess the damage that you were able to do. Um, so it's not a matter of just the missiles. This is a system of systems that they need to develop. And that, for me, is, is probably a longer pole in the tent. But uh, given the ubiquity of, of UAVs these days, maybe they can, they can overcome that with, through imports and, and developmental activities themselves. OK, thanks, Mike. Um, Kelsey, as, uh, as we turn to you, uh, one of the criticisms uh, sometimes levied is the fact that the joint plan of action, joint comprehensive plan of action, did not include so. missiles. Uh, and um, that's, that's a subject for a different, different discussion. But um, it, it doesn't necessarily curtail, uh, or it doesn't curtail the ballistic missile activity, but perhaps the UN can. Uh, so one of the questions I have for you is, um, do we expect that the, the Iranians are going to try to increase their ballistic missile activity? And then what can be done about it in the UN? What can the U.S. do? Uh, and it's, it's, it's a similar question I ask of Mike, but, but I ask you to approach it from a non-proliferation uh, viewpoint. Sure. Well, first, thank you to the Atlantic Council for having me, and of course to Michael and Bilal for an excellent report. I think it will be a great contribution to both correcting misconceptions about Iran's missile program, of which there are many, and also giving uh, some in important insights into to where their, their, their program is going. Uh, but first, you know, to your question about, you know, will we see an increase in, in Iran's testing and Iran's ballistic missile activity? And I think to understand that, it's important to look backwards and to look at how Iran has treated UN restrictions on its missile program uh, over the past decade. Uh, it was in 2006 that the UN Security Council first put sanctions on Iran, preventing them from importing technologies that would be relevant to developing its ballistic missile program. And that was all part of this larger attempt to push Iran to the negotiating table over its nuclear program. And I disagree that, you know, that, that all of those restrictions should have been included in this pressure and bringing conventional weapons into the discussion uh, on Iran's nuclear program has certainly created complications now. But uh, unfortunately, that decision was already made and there, there's not a lot, you know, we, we can't undo it. So how do we think about it going, going forward? Now, as, as Michael, I think, pointed out, you know, Iran has not viewed these restrictions placed on it first in 2006, and then the testing restrictions placed on Iran in UN Security Council Resolution 1929 in 2010 that prevented ballistic missile testing as impeding the development of its program. It's never recognized them as legitimate, and they've continued to test on average before the, these restrictions and after at about the same rate, I think with, with the exception of some of the periods when they were involved in, in negotiations negotiations on the, the deal itself. So I think that we'll certainly uh, consider, continue to see sort of that rate of testing because Iran has never regarded both the sanctions or the restrictions as, as legitimate. Now, under the new UN Security Council resolution, which was passed in January, the one that affirms the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was, of course, the nuclear deal reached in, in July of 2015, you know, this resolution keeps the sanctions in place on Iran's ballistic missile program. It prevents Iran, again, from, from importing 
uh, these sensitive technologies or, or exporting them. But it softens the language on testing. And it's created, I think, a gray space where the, the P5 plus 1, the countries that negotiated with Iran, you know, can say that you know, Iran is not following this resolution. Uh, and Iran can say, well, they, they are still abiding by the spirit of the resolution. And that's because the wording has changed somewhat. Uh, in this new resolution, Iran is called upon not to undertake uh, testing of ballistic missiles that are designed to be nuclear capable. And that is a less stringent formula than the resolution 1929, under which Iran, uh, it was mandated that Iran shall comply with a prohibition on nuclear capable ballistic missiles. So essentially, since the UN Security Council agreement came into effect, Iran has tested missiles that are capable of, of carrying a, ballist, uh, a nuclear warhead. So they surpass that threshold that Michael mentioned of, of a 500 kilogram payload over 300 kilometers. Uh, but Iran argues that they're not designed to carry nuclear weapons, ergo they're not a violation. And you can see the ambiguity that that creates reflected even more prominently in a report that the UN Secretary General issued in July when he was asked to assess the implementation of the resolution. Uh, and he ultimately concluded that uh, Iran's testing is unhelpful and it does not uh, it, it does nothing to sort of, it, it destabilizes the environment, it does nothing to help with the implementation of the deal, but he didn't ultimately rule that these tests were a violation. So I think with that, ambi that ambiguity and Iran's past disregard for the ballistic missile sanctions, uh, we'll continue to see uh, Iran sort of testing and we'll continue to see them try and circumvent these sanctions uh, to import materials that they can use for their ballistic missiles. Because uh, that's something that we've seen as well that in my mind is a fairly good indication that Iran does not have the domestic capacity necessary to produce everything it needs to uh, for its, its ballistic missile program. Uh, we've certainly seen in, in 2006 uh, steel plates destined for Iran that were interdicted, uh, different types of fuels that could be used for solid rocket propellant uh, interdicted in, in, 20, in 2007 and 2010, um, certain types of pumps in 2014. So there is this continued record of, of circumventing sanctions. And I think that that needs to lead us to have an honest question about how much sanctions have actually impacted Iran's ballistic missile development. Uh, because I think that should guide how we go forward when we think about areas to limit. Uh, now, one of the arguments that I frequently heard about Iran's ballistic missile development being impeded is that, well, we haven't seen an Iranian ICBM yet. Uh, I think that the United States has done its fair share of encouraging the idea that Iran is actually seeking an ICBM. When I'm not, I don't see indication that they're looking at those types of extended ranges. Uh, in part, you know, repeated U.S. intelligence assessments that have said, you know, with sufficient foreign assistance, you know, Iran could test an ICBM by 2015. That came and passed, and as to paraphrase from my, my former colleague and good friend Greg Thielman, uh, any country could get an ICBM with sufficient foreign assistance in a very <laughs> short time period. So I think that those assessments, plus, you know, plus prominent uh, Republicans in particular who opposed the deal, talking about the threat posed by Iran's ICBMs have created this perception that that's what Iran is pursuing. Uh, because we haven't seen it yet, the sanctions are, are, are working. 
And given that Iran has continued testing, that they've uh, developed and deployed or developed and tested uh, more accurate missiles, I think that sort of really asking whether or not these sanctions are doing anything is, is, is critical. Now also, it's important to consider that as you increase sanctions pressure, if a country or group wants to circumvent those sanctions, that drives the price up for the companies that might be willing to do business with them. So essentially, more groups may be willing to enter that marketplace because the payoff is greater. And there's a very interesting study done on this by North Korea that came out recently from, from MIT and Harvard that talks about these unintended consequences. So that's why when I think we, when we talk about how to stem Iran's ballistic missiles going forward, we need to look at areas that can complement sanctions, uh, particularly looking at uh, export controls uh, and looking at strengthening interdictions. There was a, a Bush era administration, uh, a Bush administration era initiative known as, as the Proliferation Security Initiative that brought countries together to focus on expanding capacity for interdictions. Uh, it did not create a new international law. It worked off of existing law and national authorities and essentially helped uh, create a network of information sharing uh, and also helped countries develop uh, and refine their, their authorities for actually interdicting cargo that they believed uh, was essentially illicitly bound to, to help WMD programs. Uh, there's been a fall off in terms of exercises, uh, support, and activities of PSI over the Obama administration. And if we look at how Iran is obtaining some of the materials for uh, continuing its ballistic missile program, and, and we want to stem them, that, that looking at where to direct PSI efforts I think could be very interesting. Um, the missile technology control regime, another example. Uh, this is a voluntary group uh, of, of countries that uh, sell uh, dual-use technologies that can be used for ballistic missiles. Uh, areas where we could strengthen the MTCR again to prevent uh, the flow of materials into Iran that it relies on for its ballistic missile program. I, I think one way to target that is through the MTCR. There are critical countries like um, Brazil and India and China that remain outside of the, NP the MTCR. Uh, and there are areas with uh, notifications. When a country rejects a license for a dual-use technology, you know, how are those notifications shared? Can we be more effective in alerting others that there might be attempts to circumvent, the, to circumvent sanctions? Uh, so I think you know, not just relying on sanctions alone, but looking at these areas where we can strengthen and support the sanctions movement uh, could help sort of stem and regulate the flow of materials into Iran that it does rely on for its, its ballistic missiles. Um, but I, I certainly agree with Mike in, in, in his assessment that uh, the missiles themselves do po pose far less of a risk when they're conventionally armed as opposed to armed with a nuclear warhead. So continuing to support the nuclear deal, I think, should be paramount in, in decreasing the risk posed by those, those missiles. Well, thanks a lot. That, you give us a great deal to think about, not the least of which is uh, the relationship between ICBM development and the, and the space program. And I think we'll have a chance to talk about that uh, uh, during the discussion phase. Uh, Bilal, uh, as you look at this, in terms of military contingencies, uh, really kind of broadly, how, how should we be uh, thinking about this? What should we be worried about and planning for? You know, how, do, how does a, the Iranian missile program fit into their, you know, their overall strategy. If you could address that uh, in uh, in your discussion, I'd appreciate it. And then, how do you expect the Gulf states to to respond to 
to increase pre precision. And, and you know, talk to us a little bit about how they're really thinking about it, particularly in light of the JICPOA. Thank you, Admiral. Ambassador, I didn't know you went to EV. Um, I did. We have that thing in common, I guess. Um, okay, so as, as important as it is to try to analyze uh, how the Iranians might use these more accurate missiles, I think it's also um, useful uh, to at least try to understand why they might use them. I mean, I, th I think intentions matter here. Uh, we can't just freak out about capabilities uh, and not take a moment to look at the intentions themselves. I mean, there's a reason why we don't care if this were Sweden that had these capabilities. This is, this is a different country. That, 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 um, and there's been a debate about whether this is a status quo power, whether this is a revisionist power. I really don't care about these uh, uh, labels because they could be something at some point and then change at another. I mean, you don't really stick labels to nation states and they stick forever. Uh, I think they're both at the end of the day. So they can have offensive intentions and defensive intentions as well, or it could be a mix of both. But what I do focus on is that, I think this, we can agree on this, is that they, they do have an interest in elevating their status in the region. And, uh, and if they can be lucky enough to uh, replace the United States as the most dominant power in the region, then so be it. So the question becomes, how do you do that, basically? How do you become the regional hegemon? without causing a clash with the United States from which you probably may not recover. Uh, let's not forget that there's an enormous amount of firepower in the region uh, that we have, that our allies have. The British are back to Bahrain. Uh, France is also augmenting its capabilities in the region, not to mention that the Gulf states themselves have their own capabilities. So um, yes, the Iranians are improving their capabilities, but boy, are they faced with a set of adversaries that are far more powerful. Um, but if the Iranians play their cards smartly with this new capability, should it really become something interesting in the next few years, they can, I think, achieve uh, uh, three goals. Um, once again, if they uh, pursue a pragmatic approach, a gradual approach to them, uh, and a smart one without uh, causing escalation and an open conflict with the United States. I think they've always wanted to test the coherence of the Gulf Cooperation Council. I think they've also wanted to test the unity and the strength of the partnership between the United States and its regional partners. And then the last one, uh, which we have in the paper, I think, that they also want to test the resolve and the threshold levels of Washington. So this is how I think about these more accurate missiles. If they can use those to test these three things, then they have caused greater concerns in Washington and also in Gulf capitals. Um, it may well be, and I don't want to completely uh, discount this possibility, it may well be that these increased missile capabilities would still be used for augmenting their own deterrent. So bottom line, they might even have to use them at all. This is just to send a message to their adversaries that, look, we now have much more accurate missiles. And if you do attack us in any way, shape, or form, we now have more increased capabilities. But if you're sitting in the Pentagon, and specifically you're a strategic planner, you can't just settle for this is just for deterrence. You really have to think of exactly what you asked me, Admiral, about contingencies. As remote as they are, as unlikely as they are, you have to think about them. You have to plan for them, and you have to strategize for them. So I came up with really three basic ones. It could be a whole range of contingencies that we have to think about. And I, uh, I included them in the paper. So the first one, I think, is the least likely one because it has the highest chance of escalation and causing a clash with the United States. Once again, something they do not want, and they're very uh, 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 clear about that. 
which is that they would use these missiles to fire at a, uh, a U.S. military asset, whatever it may be in the region. I think that would almost certainly, uh, I don't want to you know, say it's automatic, but it's almost certainly uh, it would cause uh, the United States to strike back forcefully. So that contingency, as, as remote as it is, uh, we still have to keep in mind. Another contingency would be that, all right, so if this is really escalatory, then what else can they use those missiles for? Let's say they hit a value target, uh, uh, Arab Gulf value target. So it's a city, it's a water desalination plant, it's an oil installation. Uh, that's something to think about. Now, does that still have a high degree of escalation also and to which we would intervene? I think so too. But compared with the first one, I think it's a lower uh, likelihood of us intervening for one simple reason. I know it's politically controversial to say that, but, but, but the reason being is that at the end of the day, if U.S. direct interests are not harmed, then it's not as automatic for us to really intervene and, and uh, uh, enter into a conflict with a foreign nation on behalf of partners with whom, by the way, we do not have formal alliances and defense pacts. These are informal security commitments that we have to them. I'm not saying we would not respond at all, but I think we will pause a little bit and think harder about risk-reward calculations. If you're sitting in Abu Dhabi or Riyadh, you definitely don't want to hear that. Uh, but, but that's reality. That's how nation states operate. Your self-interest first. The third contingency, which compared with the first two, has a lower level of escalation, which to me is more concerning, of course, is if they hit actually something that's not a value target, but a, uh, a an Arab Gulf uh, military asset. Let's say it's a radar, okay? It's a, it's a really important radar, but at the end of the day, it's still a radar that they have uh, as part of the structure of the missile defense, right? If they hit it with a precise missile and uh, wait for us to see how we respond, I think the likelihood of us responding to that is even lower than the first two. We might still do it and intervene, but uh, boy, would we think really hard about going in because at the end of the day, our ultimate objective in that region is still regional stability. And if we think that going after the Iranians would cause escalation and it would cause a sustained conflict with a nation that's there geographically and we're not there, and we're just about to wrap up our you know, uh, involvement in the region militarily and we have basically made a statement to all of our adversaries and our partners that we're pretty much really fed up with the region, uh, uh, then the last thing we want to do is enter into a sustained open-ended conflict with the Iranians. Uh, those are three classes of contingencies that I have in mind, but I'm sure there's a range of others that could be far more narrow uh, and sophisticated. Okay, so how the Gulf states, should, how should they be thinking about this or planning for this? What are some of the responses? Um, I see th three classes, basically, of responses. Uh, you fight fire with fire in the sense that uh, they start developing their own offensive missile capabilities. That's easier said than done because um, a, it's not easy to pursue that for reasons that Kelsey just mentioned. Uh, I don't know how, where they would get them. Uh, the MTCR is a huge factor. Uh, we certainly wouldn't sell them those because not only are we members of that, but also other arms control agreements that pre prevent us from doing that. But let's just assume we were not part of anything, okay? Even if we had the uh, uh, um, desire to sell those missiles, I think that it would cause more problems for us and them than actually uh, them just focusing on defense. Because for a long time, the United States has had an interest in preventing uh, an arms race in the Middle East, and specifically ballistic missile proliferation in the Middle East. Uh, and for us to switch 
uh, on that, I think will be a, a big mistake. For a long, long time, we have advised our partners in the Middle East not to uh, uh, go for uh, offensive uh, ballistic missile capabilities and focus much more on deterrence and on defense. Now, they could still go to the Chinese. Uh, if I'm not uh, incorrect on this, Kelsey, they're not part of the MCCR, right? They might have applied for membership, but they might have had uh, a suspect record in terms of export controls. So long story short, they're not a member of MTCR. They might be a source for such missiles, perhaps even the Pakistanis, right? Um, but we will continue to advise our partners not to go through that route because it could be escalatory, and it might not even actually augment their own deterrent capabilities because the Iranians are so sensitive about missiles for the same reasons that the ambassador mentioned before because of what happened in, in the uh, uh, War of the Cities in 1988 that they might have to actually go after those missiles in a preemptive fashion. Uh, the second option that they might use, if this one is too problematic and we ultimately end up convincing them not to go through that route, is to really get serious about missile defense integration, right? I'm not gonna rehash the story of that because uh, uh, boy, have we talked about it for so long that it's so important, oh my God, it's the most important thing ever in the Gulf. Uh, but the long story short is that the ball is in their court. Now they'll tell you that there's a lot that we should still be doing to help them out with that. But I think the bottom line is that there is so much more that they should be doing still that they haven't done to achieve higher levels of integration, uh, including the shared early warning system, that they don't agree on that. Uh, they don't do enough CONOPS. They don't do enough training, joint training. They don't even have a uniform assessment, actually, of the Iranian threat. So until you really get serious about all those things, then you can start complaining about Washington not providing the necessary technology. Uh, that's option number three. And finally, option number, uh, num number two. Finally, option number three, which is, why don't you double down if you're a Gulf state? Uh, and let's just be honest. It's, we're really talking about those two countries that, are, that have more adversarial relations with Iran, which is Saudi Arabia and the UAE, right? And they happen to be the more uh, militarily competent and powerful uh, countries in that six-nation uh, group. <coughs> The third option being is that you double down on your qualitative edge. And the qualitative edge is in their Air Force. Uh, they already have extremely superior capabilities to the Iranians. What you might want to do and add to that is really further invest in your standoff munitions, meaning that you can fire uh, a missile or a, or a bomb from uh, uh, outside Iranian airspace. Okay? Now, it would depend on the range of what you really have. But that could be a nice uh, uh, counter uh, to uh, missiles without having go through, going through the first route, which is developing your own uh, offensive uh, ballistic missile capabilities. Now, is that costly? Yes, but I think it's less costly than the first uh, one. And neither of these are, all of them, they're not mutually exclusive. You can work on all three at the same time. Um, but I would focus, if I were sitting in uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, Riyadh, I would focus much more on the third one because it is achievable. You still have retained the image of being a defensive power, which will give you a lot of sympathy in the international community. And if you go through the, third, the first one, then you're in that zone of countries, that category of countries where, just like the Iranians, you're perceived with some suspicion of why you, are you really developing offensive missile capabilities. So I'll stop there. There's much more details of it, of course, but uh, I'll stop here. Okay. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I want to drill down a little bit more on, the, on this integrated uh, air missile defense piece, uh, both with Mike and with you, the ambassador. So, Mike, what, I, what I'd like to ask you about is, is sort of the technical end of it. 
uh, about what it would take to, to build uh, in the Gulf a, 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 a truly integrated air missile defense capability. And given the, the systems that the Kuwaitis, uh, the, the Emiratis, the, the Saudis already have in place, given what we have in place, um, you know, kind of technically, how difficult would it be for us to do that? And, and then I'd, I'd like, Ambassador, if you would comment, uh, having just come from the region and based on some of the comments you made, um, what would it take sort of diplomatically to, to, to get us uh, all in sync in an integrated air missile defense uh, system? Want me to go first? Okay. Um, well, I'll just shamelessly plug something. Uh, <laughs> we, we, the ISS actually has a report um, that will be issued next month on uh, integrated uh, air and missile defense in the Gulf. Um, uh, Toby, Do Doctor, or Professor Toby Dodge and I and a team of people have been holding workshops and stuff uh, in the Gulf, uh, trying to assess, you know, how likely is it, and. It was really interesting, some of the things that we found over the course of about a year, year and a half of, of work. Um, I think the first and foremost challenge is all the parties need to have agreement on what it is they expect missile defense to do. Right. Um, you know, you ask uh, many of the Gulf um, um, specialists or, or advisors, you know, what do you expect missile defense to do? And they'll say, to protect us. Okay, protect what? and how and what level of protection do you require? And when you start drilling down on some of these questions, um, uh, you draw some blank faces. And I think that the first thing is there needs to be a strategic community in the Gulf that looks at things like deterrence and capability and you know, what are you trying to achieve. I think first and foremost that, that's what, what needs to happen. And I think this is where the United States has been very helpful on this uh, joint uh, ballistic missile early warning system. They've been dragging um, our Gulf partners through a requirements process and things of that nature. Uh, it's very tedious, boring, and all that, but it's a necessary step to get to where you want to be. Technically, fortunately, the Gulf partners have bought U.S. equipment. And in principle, it's all interoperable. In practice, it's not quite that way. Um, I think there's some technical challenges to actually integrating things like Patriot and Thad. Um, you know, we can do it on the test range, so we know it's doable. Um, but I, I think there's going to be a need to be a large investment in this particular element, the, actually the technical integration, creating the the infrastructure that can carry the information, and, and probably, you know, the next step is to get uh, each of the partners in the Gulf to, um, I guess, concede some level of sovereignty over their own defense. Mm -hmm. And you're not subcontracting it out to someone, but you're enhancing your own capabilities by adding uh, together. Um, and uh, so I think this is more of a political and psychological uh, issue that they, they will have to get over. Um, are we optimistic? I think there are some steps that um, will be made in the, in the future, you know, small steps like having a, a joint GCC um, kind of warehouse of spares and, and, you know, all the equipment that you need, you know, maintenance equipment that you need, maintain that as a, as a 
as a group, you purchase it as a group, and that way you can get you know, quick delivery of spare parts and, and things of that nature. And then the next step is, is the shared early warning system. Um, I think the use of sensors is a very, you know, that look about most of it away from their own states, but you can peer into territory. That's, this is an issue we'll have to get over. Um, I think the work on the shared early warning system has is, is been very helpful in them understanding uh, exactly what uh, the limitations are and, and what the capabilities need to be. Um, and then you move to deeper and deeper levels of integration where maybe in addition to sharing sensors, you start um, you know, permitting what they call uh, launch, on, on, or launch on remote or engage on remote, and that is um, say Abu Dhabi has a, a THAAD system and there's one in Qatar. Would Qatar share the sensor information in a way that would allow uh, the Emiratis to actually launch their interceptor before their own radar sees the, the, the threat. Um, and this greatly expands your capability no matter how much you, your, how you assess um, effectiveness. So I think those are the challenges that we'll be facing uh, in the future, but I, I think the, up to maybe launch and engage on remote, I think those are doable over the next decade. Um, building a centralized hub that coordinates all everything, um, I think that's probably a reach too far, at least uh, in the foreseeable future. Thank you. That, uh, well, the, 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 there are three issues. Uh, one is the issue of uh, trust among the right. GCC states. The other, to summarize what uh, was said, the other, the issue of capability, uh, human capability. To, uh, uh, to assess, strategize vis-a-vis -vis all of these uh, various components of an effective uh, regional defense system. And third, the political will. My sense is that there is unevenness, and based on this trip, uh, or the, the focus of the trip was Saudi Arabia, uh, that uh, some progress can be made on some things that includes a broader set of GCC members. Uh, and, but some uh, uh, is unlikely to happen if it, uh, the, if it includes everyone for the, in the foreseeable future. So th the question is, is there, is, there a, is there an approach and that the core group, uh, I mean, this may be difficult also to speak about, uh, uh, where the capacity and the will uh, is, is there uh, and the trust is there where they can, and they can, uh, they can uh, uh, make more progress at a faster pace. Uh, or, or this comprehensiveness in terms of participation uh, and, and, and agreement is going to uh, be really a cause for delay and continuation of of uh, of uh, of this uh, gap. So um, I don't know. I didn't get a sense that that wasn't the focus of the trip to get into the nitty gritty of this uh, with the type of people we were talking about uh, too. Uh, but I, I I suspect there may be more. Uh, of a potential for a more differentiated uh, kind of uh, approach uh, for success in the shorter term than a, than a region-wide comprehensive approach. Okay, thank you. 
Uh, I, I want to touch briefly on, uh, on the Iranian space program because there's a, a part in the paper uh, about um, no nation having a history of, of taking a, uh, uh, a, a space launch vehicle and turning it into an IBM. Uh, ICBM. ICBM, although we, we have turned ICBMs into, that's how we got right. our own space program started. The other started. Way. Um, and then, Kelsey, you had mentioned that there's no evidence that they're trying necessarily to develop an ICBM. So really, I think this question would be best directed at Mike. Um, do we then have a sense that, that the Iranian space program is, is a genuine space program, that they're, they're interested in space? Uh, because I think many people have thought it's, it's really been a cover for something else. Well, you know, the answer to that is a little bit uh, like the answer to their civilian <laughs> nuclear program. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, they have a history of pursuing a hedging strategy, mm -hmm. you know, to, to leave the options open to do what right. they, they need to do. Um, but the technologies they're working with today, um, the, the well, let me go back. The space program, yes, they have a genuine interest in the exploration of space. They see this as a kind of a... A, a, a symbol of their technical prowess, and, and you know, in some ways, North Korea um, also pursues certain things to project uh, prowess and, and national pride and, and, and such to be, you know, considered one of the uh, foremost nations in the world. Um, and if you look at the structure of the Iranian space program, it appears to be directed at space. I think recently. Uh, it may be a year and a half or so now, they moved portions of the, of the space enterprise outside the military. Not all of it, but portions of it. They're still supplied with the basic, you know, the engines and the, and the, um, um, the boosters from the military because the, they're the ones that acquire this capability. Um, as, in terms of actually being able to use it effect, the space program effectively to develop an ICBM, as long as they're launching with Scud-type uh, or Nodong-type uh, engines, any resultant ICBM would be very large. Um, I mean, we're talking, you've probably seen the, the Unha launcher that the North Koreans use. It's static. You can't move it around. It's, it's probably not even transportable. Um, it takes weeks just to assemble the thing. Um, it would take time to fuel it and, well, Iran has great strategic depth, it would be difficult for them to deploy this effectively. Uh, my personal view is they will probably continue to pursue hedging strategy for an ICBM um, as, you know, I mean, they've got 10, 15 years to develop the capacity because they're not going to have a nuclear weapon anytime soon. I think the only reason to have an ICBM would be if you had nuclear weapons. Um, so these two things, you know, have to be tracked uh, together to to get a better uh, feel for what they're going to do. Just the last note on why hasn't anyone converted a satellite launcher into a ballistic missile? And it really basically comes down to operational requirements. Um, missiles have to be ready to fire 24/7 under any weather conditions or other um, you know external environmental um, constraints. Whereas a satellite launcher, you can just do it when you're ready. Um, and this means the reliability and all sorts of other uh, uh, and testing requirements are, are very different for a satellite launcher. Um, and they're typically not optimized for, um, 
for the military role. Um, they use a different types of engines, or, you know, thrust profiles to get into the, the nerdy technical stuff. But so far, what Iran has done and what they're projected to use for their space launch, they are optimized to put a satellite into orbit. But they're going to learn a lot, and all of this is applicable to an ICBM program at some point. So um, I guess I've dodged your question <laughs> in a sense, but um, what would worry me is if Iran's satellite launch program began using technologies that were more consistent with the way you would build an ICBM. Um, I think some of the things you've seen in North Korea of recent, the, the Musadon um, and this large engine test they conducted earlier this week, those to me are the truly worrying developments. And uh, uh, these are the types of engines that you could make a, an ICBM that is maybe not road mobile, but it's road transportable. And it would be very hard to target. Uh, but again, it takes, uh, you know, from first flight test to having a reliable system. That's a three, four, five year period if you know what you're doing and have experience. Um, for someone like Iran, I think it would be probably more than five years for it to be reliable, but does it have to be reliable? That's only, you know, the leaders of Iran can tell you that. Okay, thanks. And Kelsey, this is something I think your organization also studies, so mm -hmm. if I can ask you to comment as well. Well, I, I, I never argue with Mike on the technical <laughs> points, and I always take his word for it. So I think I, I would certainly agree with a number of the points that he made, but to also look at it from a, a slightly different perspective, given that Iran has not considered itself bound by testing prohibitions in the past or by uh, sanctions on, on its ballistic missile program in terms of exports, you know, if it wanted to pursue an ICBM, you know, why not begin taking the steps to do that? It's already violating the resolutions. It's already showing little regard for um, the new UN resolution on testing. So, so why not take that forward as well? I mean, what, what, what would the response be? I mean, in, in, in my mind, beginning to take those steps is not going to garner much more of a response because in the US, we already think they're doing it anyways. So, you know, that, that's one point. But the other, and I should have made this in my initial remarks, is that lifting the sanctions on Iran that would allow it to import technologies for its ballistic missile program, you know, that is largely in Iran's hands right now. Uh, those sanctions will time out uh, in October of 2023, but they can be lifted much sooner if Iran takes certain steps to cooperate with the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, regarding transparency about its nuclear program. If they get to a finding by the IAEA known as the broader conclusion that has to do with ensuring that the program is peaceful, that there's been no diversion of material, then those sanctions can be lifted sooner. And Iran is not you know, taking a lot of steps to move that process along. You know, they could probably get there in as little as three years if they wanted to, uh, but they're not hurrying that up. So if they, if they really wanted to extend uh, the, the ranges, if they wanted to put themselves in a position where they were working towards an ICBM, uh, by the time the restrictions on their nuclear program came out, you know, why not begin doing that now? So I said it just, to me, it seems, you know, that coupled with what uh, officials in the Rouhani administration have said about looking at missiles with ranges below 2,000 kilometers, I think, you know, to me, it just indicates that there is less of an interest at this time going down that path. But the key point, uh, I, I assume, is at this point uh, that uh, if for the immediate future, the emphasis, uh, the requirement that they have put 
perhaps on their planners is for the region. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as part of their effort to be the preeminent, let's say, regional power. That doesn't preclude that at some point they could uh, develop uh, ambitions for developing yeah. an ICBM. And some of the things they are doing to, with, the, with regard to space or even with regard to the uh, in improving their regional capabilities can have relevance uh, for developing uh, the longer range capabilities. Mm -hmm. So what, what I, th I suppose the differences on emphasis mm -hmm. uh, uh, that uh, one doesn't preclude over time to evolve into the other. No, certainly. And, and I do think that that's why we shouldn't be complacent in right. Iran's activities. And we should look at some of these areas that might help support the sanctions that are in place now right. and continue to act after the sanctions so that if they do choose that path, right. there are still impediments in terms of getting the technology and material that would be helpful. Sure. I think it's important also to remember that the costs of building an, or, you know, developing right. a, an ICBM are enormous. Um, one only has to follow the debate in this country about the right. cost of the Air Force ICBM. Right. Um, you know, they can't even settle on what it's going to sure. cost you yeah, right now. But, it, you know, certainly we're going to make something much more capable and it'll be much more expensive to do than for Iran or for other countries. But I think it's important, you know, is this something they're willing to invest in when they could point. probably reach or attain most of their strategic goals that doing it regionally? Right. And when that the is. sanctions on ballistic missiles come off, mm -hmm. you know, it could be around the time that the sanctions, that the arms embargo comes right. off. So where are they going to want to invest? Exactly. That, I think, is a very That's interesting a question, question that I don't yeah. know the answer to. <laughs> Okay, I have one final question, and then we'll open it up to the uh, to the group. Uh, we've talked about the battle of the cities a couple of times, uh, and that being a driver in, in many cases for their ballistic missile development. One of the concerns I had when I was a fifth fleet commander was um, how the Iranian calculus would change if their if their missiles were just a little at a little bit better range, mm -hmm. and were a little bit more accurate. If they were accurate enough to hit the pier at Maina Salman or hit the headquarters and not worry about hitting the Shia neighborhoods that surrounded the base. Uh -huh. uh, so um, would they be more willing to fight the battle of the cities, uh, understanding that the, the counter battle wouldn't be Iraqi scuds, it would be GCC uh, aircraft with precision weapons in all likelihood. Uh, if they, if their, their missiles were just a little bit more accurate and had a little bit better range, and how would that look like? And I'll just throw that out to the group. It's kind of like thre threading the needle, right? I mean, at, at the end of the day, you, you want to try to accomplish the objectives that I laid out before, but at the same time, prevent um, uh, serious escalation and a clash with the United States. And it, it's really tricky to do the things that you just described, Admiral, without really causing us to intervene forcefully. Um, it goes back to issues that have nothing to do with weapons, and the ambassador talked about, like, uh, uh, resolve, political will, uh, our own calculations of our own interests there, uh, what really merits uh, uh, our intervention, what are the biggest stakes that we have there, what are the most important priorities. Those are things that uh, uh, have nothing to do with weapon systems, but it's a very tricky balance. Uh, uh, and, and because there is an inherent risk of escalation, they have to think really, really hard about how to use those. Um, Admiral, I 
the way I, I look at the increased accuracy and what it might do for Iran, I think one of the big thing, major changes would be their willingness to use them, as right. you said. Um, it provides them with a lot greater operational flexibility. And that's, that's of concern. And, um, and, I, and I think it's, it's precisely that that worries me the most, is it, it opens up the, the window of possibilities for them as they become increasingly more capable and, and less the risk of collateral damage or um, striking the wrong target that's, you know, you know, not just the collateral, but the political and diplomatic damage it would do. Um, so this, this is uh, something they have to be, that they're likely thinking about, and it's one of the drivers behind the, the, the search for greater accuracy. Um, I, one thing we haven't talked about is Kuwait. Um, Kuwait is very clo much closer geographically to Iran and is susceptible to not only artillery rock fire, but also these shorter range systems that are highly accurate. Mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, I think the Kuwaitis have different strategic requirements for defending themselves than, say, uh, Saudi the, the Saudi Arabia or, you know, to reach Saudi territory from Iran, um, you know, from a safe distance inland in Iran. It, it, you need something greater than 300 kilometers. You probably need to be in the 500 kilometer range of, of capability. So uh, right now, Iran has a limited number of these systems. Um, so just looking at this, um, I think we need to look more about at the war fighting capacity that they're trying to develop and how we're going to defend against that. It's basically an extension of, of um, area denial strategy, which they're practicing with, with their asymmetric capabilities. Okay, thank you. All right, I'm happy to open it up to uh, questions now, please. If you wait for the mics to come around and then when you uh, get a mic, uh, please identify uh, your, yourself and where, what organization you're from. We'll start with Harlan, please. Uh, I'm Harlan Ohm with the Atlantic Council. Thanks very much. An observation and a couple of questions. Uh, it seems to me that any military wants to move from a science project to an effective weapon systems. And when you have a missile that has an accuracy of plus or minus Kuwait, certainly 50 meters is much more desirable. So I think this is inherent militaries, irrespective of the strategy, it just makes more sense to make something more effective. A question for Zal and a question for you, John. Uh, Zal, uh, Iran has many tempting targets potentially from Riyadh to Ankara to Tel Aviv. To what degree do you think Israel has entered into your thinking about their missile systems? And John, one of this is a little off the subject of, of missiles, but very important. Um, Iranian gunboats have been harassing American ships for quite a while. I know you tried this, but what opportunity you think exists for some kind of an incidence at sea agreement being reached to prevent these interactions because there's always the prospect of a Vincennes and quite frankly you must have done a tremendous job as fifth fleet commander to discipline your skippers because I know if I was in that position I'd be awfully interested in pulling the trigger once and twice to just show them a lesson. Well on the uh, Israel part my suspicion is that this is very much part of their thinking to deter an attack uh, from Israel and to be able to uh, respond and to, to do damage. And uh, I, I, that's why I think also they're uh, thinking a lot about survivability of their systems in terms of numbers, in terms of mobility, in terms of being underground. Uh, uh, and and 
uh, when we think about GCC and us, and maybe it's uh, outside the box right now, but I don't uh, rule out over a, over a longer term period uh, missile defense cooperation between uh, uh, not only us and the Gulf states, but uh, Israel and, 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 the, and, the, and the Gulf states. Uh, because one of the things that I heard uh, was that, uh, that they don't see any more Israel as a military threat, that in fact they see that on some major issues, uh, it's a very identical threat perception. And so, but uh, uh, I think to go back to the your question, I think that's, uh, I suspect that's uh, one of the main uh, uh, factors in the Iranian strategy and planning. Uh, thanks for the question. I, I, I think there's very little opportunity for any kind of, of an agreement uh, with the Iranians. You know, we maintain a, a hotline, if you will, in the, in the Fifth Fleet headquarters, at least they did, I, and I assume they still do. Uh, and we can't get the Iranians to, to use that. Right. And we always thought that, that would be useful yeah. as a way to defuse tensions should something happen at, at sea. Um, what, what, there's a couple points, though, that are interesting. The kind of behavior that we've seen, uh, uh, which you know I used to describe it and previous Fifth Fleet commanders did as buffoonery, and we would quantify the, yeah. you know, the probability of buffoonery, the B sub B. Um, but it's it's increased over the last year, but but it's not it's not uh, enormously in, increased. It's just higher. Uh, one of the things that's always been difficult to do is to understand at what level that occurs. Is it you know on that particular patrol boat? Is it a district headquarters? Is it something higher? So if you look at the last uh, several incidents over you know they, there were four in a week. Uh, what was interesting about them is, is they occurred from the Strait of Hormuz to the Northern Arabian Gulf. Well, that cuts across all the IRGCN uh, districts, uh, which tells me that's, that's a high level, you know. Um, and so th those were very much done on purpose. They're intended to provoke, uh, and they got, and, and, and that was a provocation that got all the way up to warning shots. Uh, and, and then what happened? There's only been one incident since then. So, uh, that tells us a lot about the Iranians. Now, what the Fifth Fleet uh, is pretty good at doing is what you alluded to, is providing guidance to the commanders. Uh, there are procedures to go through. It's an understanding that, that this is not necessarily a hostile act, uh, that this is a provocation. And so in order to, to keep it from escalating into something that no one will benefit from, uh, a tactical action with strategic consequences, uh, stick to the procedure. So I think we'll just continue to do that. Uh, why the Iranians find this beneficial is a little bit mysterious, I think, to all of us. Um, but I think we can all be very proud of the way that the sailors yeah. you know, out on the deck plates have conducted themselves. Admiral, may I add uh, just a quick sure. point to what the ambassador said? Um, it relates to your question. Uh, I think as far as Israel is concerned, um, and you can never rule out anything, of course, but I think that it's almost um, exclusively geared toward deterrence, the Iranian uh, right. posture. Um, mm -hmm. And you can see that also with Hezbollah uh, across the border. Uh, two reasons for that. I think there's a higher degree of appreciation by the Iranians of the relationship between the United States and Israel. They have more doubts about the relationship between the U.S. and the Gulf partners. But when it comes to Israel, mm -hmm. they know that it's almost a red line. And two, which, which brings up the second point, is that because of that, 
there's a lower level of Iranian adventurism when it comes to Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and they have also a healthy appreciation for the Israeli military capabilities far more than the Gulf capabilities, even though there was, those are quite considerable too. So for that, I think it still really is based on deterrence. I mean, who knows? I mean, 2006 happened, as you know, uh, out of an accident and miscalculation. So that could easily also happen between these two. But, but they're far more on the defensive and the deterrence side with Israel than it is with the Gulf states. Right. Okay, the gentleman over here. Um, Samar Chatterjee, Safe Foundation. Uh, interesting that uh, this panel, there was no one who mentioned during the entire uh, panel presentation Israel, but for, for the first question, and my question related to Israel, uh, and I guess you mentioned that uh, the Iranians no longer consider Israel to be the major threat, but I thought all of their development was to placate Israel and Israel, if it finds a very favorable U.S. president who would encourage them, like George Bush did, to do whatever you want, uh, could uh, find an excuse to attack a nuclear facility or some facility in Iran, and then a response would be required from the Iranians. So will this missile development or, or nuclear development, what implications would it have? Well, you want to you want to take a shot at that? Sure, sure. Um, respectfully, sir, I didn't I didn't say that uh, uh, they do not perceive uh, Israel to be a threat. As a matter of fact, they're pretty high on that list of uh, of uh, threats. But I did say that their posture is geared toward deterrence, uh, and um, you know history suggests uh, the way they have armed Hezbollah, the way they have uh, conducted themselves vis-a-vis -vis Israel, is that they've always been on the defensive. Um, uh, just to narrow down more on the question, what, what was precisely the question, if you don't mind? Uh, if, Israel were to, if Israel were to start the offense on mm -hmm. uh, some excuse, mm -hmm. will there be a response from Iran? And is all this development only meant for that? Because I don't think U.S. will, uh, I mean, U.S. will be seen if it attacks Iran as a bully, you know, in the world. I mean, it, in the international community, it will be viewed. And that may be the reason why when they arrested those American uh, seamen and so on, the U.S. did not react uh, sure. in a very adverse way, which U.S. can. I mean, the uh, U.S. has the ability to, but the whole world would consider it to be a very bully action by the United States and probably brings in <laughs> Russia and China and all that sure, sure. into that. Okay. So I'll just make a quick point. I'm sure the panelists also have other thoughts on this. Uh, really depends on the uh, lethality of the strike, but I would say that uh, they wouldn't let something like this go uh, um, without a response. And the preferred course of action has always been for them to work through proxies. And they happen to be quite lucky to have a pretty significant uh, 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 counter-strike in Hezbollah. This is not a non-state actor that really is um, you know, insignificant or does not have considerable military capabilities. They do. So they will probably fight to the last Lebanese instead of really causing a direct clash between the two. Uh, that would be my assumption, but I could be wrong. Uh, uh, they also have an interest in preventing escalation because the Israelis, I would say, depending on if this will be a sustained conflict, I think they have the advantage if we were not to intervene. But uh, the Israelis, for the short term, maintain escalation dominance. So uh, the Iranians have always been very sensitive to that. 
Yeah, just uh, one point, and, and it brings up something I neglected to, to actually bring up in the, in the paper itself. Um, it's too late now, Mike. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, uh, that's the problem yeah. with deadlines. Um, would I, well, if you look at the history of Iran's program, they spent from about 1995 till 2010 trying to create the capacity to retaliate with missiles launched from their own territory that could reach Israel. You know, it's, it's, it's a minimum of 1,000 kilometers, but if you want to, you know, launch from areas that are more protected, it's 1,300 kilometers. That was the focus of their program from 2000 to 2007 or 8. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they definitely have in mind of, of some form of retaliation. Yep. The other form of retaliation is they have been supplying Hezbollah with, you know, tens of thousands of missiles. Uh, Fatah 110 is one of them. And this is, you know, one of the concerns is if they provide a, a highly accurate system to Hezbollah, then they might be able to do, conduct attacks uh, that they otherwise could not with, without uh, the fear of inadvertent escalation if they're attacking just airfields that, that are being used to attack southern Lebanon, for example. Um, but Hezbollah will lack the targeting and all those capabilities, but they could harass um, air operations more effectively. So I, I think that's something we need to keep in mind and, and watch what uh, Iran is exporting. Sure. Okay. Gentleman in the yellow tie. That's you, Tom. Hmm. So Tom Carrico, CSIS, uh, I really want to commend you, uh, Mike and Bilal, for this uh, paper, which I think is, is important uh, because, as you state right in the conclusion, it challenges the conventional wisdom that uh, post-JCPOA Ar Iranian missiles don't matter, right? This paper seems to say they do. They might. They might. Mm -hmm. They might. Uh, there's a lot of mites here. Right. Mm -hmm. But given that, I was struck by the relative uh, absence on the panel, maybe I missed it, of a call for, I would say, a concerted diplomatic effort mm. to post-JCPOA uh, roll back uh, and, and put limits on Iranian missile capabilities. And I know, Kelsey, you mentioned MTCR and PSI, kind of passive outside uh, export in other uh, ways. But as we know, JCPOA, instead of going after this, loosens them after eight years. And so if your predictions if the mites here come about in five years or something is the timeline you give, you know, then in eight years when the sanctions go off, where, where does that put us? Mm -hmm. And should we not be thinking about a diplomatic offensive to roll this back? Now, if the answer to that is there's no appetite for that, either among our European friends, us, or the Iranians, then doesn't that mean we have to move very decisively to the expensive strike and missile defense capabilities to answer this? Great question. Yeah, it's it is a good question. Um, I'll take the first stab at it. Um, my, I think there was a reason that the missiles were not included in, in the JCPOA. There was enough difficult challenges uh, in and of itself. And as long as the missiles aren't armed with nuclear weapons, the existential threat they pose to uh, the region, uh, I think, is um, is reduced. So if you you know, focus on what makes them incredibly dangerous. And I, I think that was personally the right decision to make. It, it doesn't make me happy that it wasn't included. I don't want to create the wrong impression. Um, in terms of diplomatic measures, I, I think that the biggest challenge would be how Iran thinks about their missiles. For Iran, 
I mean, it's in their DNA. It's, it's one of the three central pillars of their defense and deterrence mm -hmm. strategy. Um, you know, those that grew up during the wars of the cities, it left an indelible impression. Um, I mean, there, it's no uh, coincidence that they parade these things around. They use test launches and military exercises just to, to re kind of, um, you know, message their deterrent capability. Um, so I think the willingness on the Iranian side is going to be, the pressure you'd have to put on them is enormous. I think the, the more interesting longer term question is, as they're able to import advanced aircraft and other, and other weapons from China, Russia, or whoever, um, do they, does the priority missiles have now, does it become reduced? I would argue probably not uh, as long as the, the current commanders are in place and such because they have bought into this narrative that missiles are their you know, defensive capability. Um, but I think over the longer term, they, they may see reason to invest their money otherwise. Um, but that will depend on the relationship they have with, with the regional uh, rivals and with the U.S. in the region. Um, but um, it would be nice for a diplomatic solution. Uh, I know, well, I've been looking at a, a, uh, an effort to create an agreement within the region that prohibits um, missiles with ranges of 2,500 kilometers, maybe 3,000 kilometers, mm -hmm. uh, with verification measures, uh, confidence building measures included in it. Uh, whether that will gain any traction in the region remains to be seen, but I, I think this is one way of kind of maybe uh, using salami tactics to, uh, on the Iranians to reduce the, the future capabilities. Yeah, please. Um, you know, I, I certainly agree that I think keeping missile limits outside of the JCPOA was, was a wise move for multiple reasons. And I actually think Iran had a strong case when they wanted the testing prohibitions and the sanctions on missiles to be lifted immediately because they were imposed to get Iran to negotiate, and they did. So I, I view these years as, as a bonus. And I think you raise a very good point of, you know, what, what can we do with this time? Uh, and I think that there are some interesting options for a, a, a diplomatic approach. You know, some have discussed the idea of, you know, trade-offs on missile limits for, you know, access to dollar clearing. Uh, I'm a, a little hesitant to go down that road because I think it just it opens the door for, you know, Iran to leverage, you know, other other things to get around sort of certain sanctions that I think should remain in place. Um, but I think you know a, a regional approach is, is is more interesting for, for for several reasons because I also don't see Iran agreeing to limit its ballistic missiles when no other country in the region That's is right. subject to those limits, even if they don't have the capabilities. I just mm -hmm. I, I, I don't see that just from a their view of their own position in the region. Um, but looking at areas like, you know, notifications for testing, you know, that's something that has been successful in India, Pakistan. Uh, you know, as, as Mike said, you know, some sort of range restriction, uh, perhaps something, other measures to build confidence as part of, a, you know, a reinvigorating the process towards the Middle East WMD free zone. I may still be the only believer in that idea, but <laughs> I think it's an option. I, I, I think exploring those is something that the next you know, president, you know, the U.S. should should really consider and, and, and look at options for. I think that, uh, of course, having not been involved in negotiations on the nuclear issue, I don't know uh, whether 
something could have been done on this as well because of the pressures that Iran was subjected to, and Iran was in violation on the missiles as much as it was on the nuclear issue, so because they were, they were violating UN Security Council resolutions with regard to both. And that's the law. I mean, you may not agree with it, but uh, that's, they didn't, I don't think they liked the sanctions on the nuclear issue any more than uh, so, but, uh, they, they thought they were in their rights to develop enrichment uh, and so forth. So, but that's, a, uh, that's a, for another day. Uh, but on the going forward, the question is how do you get leverage over this issue for diplomacy to have any chance, as we see in Syria, when you don't have leverage, you're rather uh, unlikely to be effective. Uh, so, uh, and, and uh, uh, can we put uh, enough uh, sanctions based on the, the missile concerns and get enough cooperation like we did on the nuclear issue without undermining the nuclear agreement, and, uh, and, and that may be one constraint uh, that the administration, this one at least, uh, uh, thinks that that will be a risk if you go too far in the sanctioned business. And there may not be an interna the international will besides to, to, to do it. So the one or a couple of things that may not be enough uh, is what Mike was saying, if the people, if, uh, since they're inferior in terms of conventional capability, otherwise, on, uh, for example, aircraft, mm -hmm. whether people, uh, we can get an agreement with those who might sell them aircraft to say, yes, but that has to be an exchange uh, for mm -hmm. constraints on the, on the missile program, for example. I'm not that optimistic we will get a regional uh, kind of agreement, although it's very much <laughs> uh, because the region is going in the opposite direction, but hopefully that, uh, that, that, uh, that will change. So the question is, uh, the, uh, this is very important for Iran. The missile program is one of their key programs, uh, as was said, and it will require a lot of uh, uh, risk and reward for them to recalibrate that, and I don't see the will right now. Of course, as you said, the next administration might take a might take a look at this. Uh, 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 so I'm not terribly optimistic. In other words, if I could just add to that, if, mm -hmm. if you remember the after the last two tests, um, several nations got together and, and issued a, a very strong statement that said things like. The tests were inconsistent with and in defiance of, you know, UN Resolution 2231. Right. Demanded a report, right. um, and then the report said, as as Kelsey mentioned, you know, those tests were unhelpful. Right. Uh, you know, so with that kind of strong, you know, <laughs> yeah, very re strong response, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure we're gonna we're gonna get, you know do much better. I'm sure we didn't want anything stronger than that. <laughs> right. It's hard with convention. gentlemen in the purple shirt. Uh, <clears throat> hi, Charles Perkins with APAC. Um, again, both to Mike and, and to Mike Paul. had to use the bathroom, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> He'll be back. He did not vacate um, Congratulations to both on uh, a very important treatment of the subject. Um, one, I guess this is more for you, Bilal. Um, has Iran, do you believe, um, been informed at all by the current ongoing use of ballistic missiles in Syria, where you know, it doesn't get the publicity that barrel bombs have, but there's been extensive use of their ballistic missile, the Syrian ballistic missile arsenal in really horrific fashion. But also I think there's been some exchanges in Yemen lately, and uh, I think even in Iraq against ISIS. Um, 
do you think that uh, this experience in terms of lessons learned may have had an impact in their evolving concept um, at all? And then maybe this is more for Mike, but um, ballistic missiles obviously aren't the only systems that the Iranians have, and although they may claim to have more in the way of armed drones, cruise missiles, and so on, than uh, they really do, in fact, they're also making progress in this direction as well. And I'm wondering uh, if you could say anything about it. I noted there really wasn't much in your, in your book, uh, in, in the paper on this. Um, if that's something of, of as serious concern in terms of accuracy in particular, the precision front as, um, as on the ballistic side. Um, and then just, uh, just briefly, I would uh, definitely echo what Kelsey said about uh, MTCR and PCI. These are regimes that have been around for a long time, but I think they could definitely be uh, rebooted uh, in, the, in the near future as a way of adding and complementing to the sanctions as a means of stopping technology com coming into the Iranian. Well, I have an incredibly short answer for the first one. I have no clue. Um, uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, do they have some uses, limited uses in the battlefield that they're now really experiencing with? Maybe. Uh, but we're talking so about something a little bit different here with a set of adversaries that have you know, some close relations with the United States. So it's a different strategic mix. Um, but are they closely monitoring the uh, effectiveness or the uh, utility of those usages in the theaters that you just mentioned? Maybe. Uh, to what extent does that really have an effect on the doctrine? I really can't say. Um, your second question was more to Mike, right? Uh, you want to just ask it again? Yeah. Sure. Um, I noted that the paper didn't really cover uh, cruise missiles, armed UAVs, things like that, that the Iranians have been reporting to have a significant growing capability, but may or may not have. So in terms of specifically the precision added value here, how much of it? We don't know nearly as much about the cruise missile program um, because their flight tests can be done more covertly than their, their missile tests, um, for one. Um, at least in the public domain, we don't know. Um, but cruise missiles have the potential to be precisely guided um, because they can use GPS more easily. Um, they travel at lower speeds, they're controlled through the entire flight uh, and those things. Armed drones, uh, same thing. Um, but it's, you know, it's not something that they're going to immediately have. Um, I think there's other limitations. I, uh, cruise missiles in one way are easier to defend against, in other ways they're more difficult. Uh, but this is an area that Iran has been working um, slowly. I think their biggest impediment will be access to turbofan or turbojet engines. Um, you know, it's that you know, missile engines are difficult to make, uh, but turbo, an effective turbofan engine is probably far more difficult, and there's a limited number of suppliers, um, and I think those suppliers keep a pretty close tab on them. Um, it has been interesting that we haven't seen a full flight test of the KH-55s that Iran um, acquired from the Ukraine. Um, you know, they, they did some demonstration tests to make it look like it was a, a, a test, but um, it'll be interesting to see if that uh, pops its head up sometime in the future. But uh, that, it is a concern, um, but we wanted to limit the scope of this uh, to just ballistic missiles for now. Sure. 
thank you very much. My name is Behnam. I'm a senior Iran analyst at FDD and really want to commend Bilal and uh, Mike for an excellent paper and well scoped with the conventional in front of the missile threat. Uh, two very quick questions, uh, and they're both for Mike. I apologize. Uh, the first is, Mike, you mentioned something about the Iranian uh, word for deter the Persian word for deterrence, the doctrine. The word I've seen in the strategic literature is bazdarandigi. Uh, it's like it implies more of a deterrent defense than as a, we see deterrence. I wanted to know what you had heard about that or what you had seen about that. The second is, as you know, it's sacred defense week in Iran, and every year they deploy, they uh, unveil new weapons or mock-ups of weapon systems. And we want to know what do you make uh, of the, the, the weapons that Iran unveils but doesn't flight test. You mentioned the KH-55, Iran calls it the Sumar land attack cruise missile. Uh, as far as I know, they haven't flight tested that. They haven't flight tested the Fatah 313, which they unveiled after the nuclear deal last year. So they unveil it, but they don't flight test it. Do you think this is just more deterrent posturing, or are they really inaugurating uh, new lines of production for these things that we simply can't see in the open source, be it in English or Persian? Um, both good questions, thank you. Um, in terms of the parade uh, that occurred uh, at the beginning of the week, um, the two things that I took notice of were, were this new system they call the Zulfikr, which I think is just the, Iran, uh, the Fatah 313. Um, they claimed it had a range of 750 kilometers. I think it's closer to about 300 kilometers, but I haven't done a detailed assessment of the, the, what they presented. I have of the, F, uh, the Fatah 313. Um, I don't know if they've been testing the, the Fatah 313. They may be doing it covertly. Um, you know, this is something that, you know, they can conduct in their, the inlands, um, and it would only be detected by radar. Um, I, I always worry that because there was so much international law, as an analyst, not as a, um, um, you know, being able to do analysis. Um, you know, the ostracization that they underwent um, after testing missiles again, um, it may drive them to not announce them and not provide videos, um, which makes my job more difficult. But if they're truly testing and we're not learning about it, it makes assessments much more difficult. Uh, I'm sure that countries with uh, a lot of overhead capability and radars in the region uh, can monitor the tests. So if they are, that I'm pretty certain that we would know, the government would know about it. On deterrence, the best way it was explained to me by a, a Farsi-speaking person was um, the word is essentially, it's, it's like you know, putting your hands up to defend yourself. And, and so um, that's the word I'd be going. It, has, it does mean defend. It also means somewhat to deter by pushing back. Um, so it, but how it's used in the strategic literature and how, more importantly, how the Iranians um, view that word is a little less clear to me because I don't speak Farsi. Um, and it's, you know, it, it would be interesting to, to work with people that, that do and, and also understand, you know, at least Western concepts and, you know, Chinese concepts of deterrence because I think this would help us better understand how Iran is thinking about uh, potential warfare and, you know, what their triggers might be for war. Mm -hmm. Can I ask uh, maybe, Mike, this? I mean, when you read their literature on deterrence, uh, mm -hmm. when translated, I mean, uh, do they believe that in order to have the deterrence capability, you need to be able to survive an attack, uh, uh, then make a decision, deliberate decision, communicate that decision, then execute that decision and do what you want to the adversary as a result. I mean, how do they, 
kind of uh, put all the requirements that I just said. Is that what they, 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 they believe is to have a deterrent capability means what to them? That, that's a good question, um, and I'm probably not the best person uh, yeah. or even close to it to answer it, but yeah. from what I have read, you mm -hmm. know, you look at their mosaic doctrine, for right. example, this is something that devolves decision-making down to really low levels because, uh -huh. you know, again, one of the lessons they learned from uh, 1991 when we tried to decapitate uh, so they're the Saddam. Is, uh, to, so they, to launch under attack, so yes. you would say. I would say it's probably closer to, to that, yeah. um, okay. but it would be a decision that's made down at lower levels. Uh -huh. Um, oh, it's different. You know, if, if they're decapitated, if they're not right. decapitated, it might be a little bit uh -huh. different. Uh -huh. It okay. could be both Sorry. deterrence by denial and by punishment, which yeah. gets us back to the missiles, yeah. the accuracy, because if they are attacked and now they have more accurate missiles, then they can punish the adversary. But they would have to survive, they would think. Yeah. They well, would assuming have to it's have not an, an overwhelming yeah. 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 Hmm. Good thing it's not all nuclear. I mean, yeah, it really yeah, goes yeah. back to your yeah, first yeah. point because yeah. it's really crucial. Yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our time. <laughs> I, I want to thank the uh, Brent Scowcroft Center for International Studies for uh, hosting and thank all of you for coming. Please join me in thanking our excellent panel. Hey, thank you. the mic and the law. <laughs>